series about faith and work. And so far, we've been reminded that the Apostle Paul, with his tent making, that practical work which he did, um, it wasn't disconnected from the rest of his life. It was connected to his preaching in the synagogue. Both of these things were an important part of his Christian calling. So we've considered that our lives, too, are not only lives who are called to certain areas of work that have natural or obvious complements to Christian ministry. We have also considered the long history of people who have been pushing the frontiers of human innovation, invention, and discovery, and the goodness of that work, but also some of the challenges that come with it as they continue to seek wisdom that they should do so in the fear of the Lord. As they seek to bring light to dark places, they should do so seeking the light which only God can bring. Then last week we heard Natasha challenge us to consider our calling as Christians like bakers who watch yeast work in bread, in dough. In the same way, we all should be watching and participating in the rising of God's rule and God's reign in this world. We also heard how all those who work nourishing others, whether paid or unpaid, are in fact participating in seeking a kingdom where all are provided for, where all have enough. This week, we're going to be considering the work which the call of the gospel actually prevents us from participating in, the occupations and the ways of work which Jesus draws us away from. And right off the top, I want to give a little disclaimer for parents who might be listening at home with small children. There will be some more adult topics in today's sermon, handled gently and probably nothing to be concerned about, but I wanted to give you a heads up. I suspect when we think about work which Christians shouldn't be doing, certain examples come to mind almost immediately, don't they? We probably think of things like drug dealers or sex workers or thieves. All of these areas of work have been common throughout human history in one way or another. There are in fact more sex workers today because of the internet and the way that it makes so much more available in a variety of forms than ever before. And the criminalization of many drugs has seemed to create the environment where they are more dangerous now than ever before. Not only because the criminal underworld is involved with them, but also because they're being cut with all sorts of other more dangerous substances in fact, causing an opioid epidemic that remains ongoing, even worsening, while the coronavirus takes the front page of every newspaper still. These examples are of work which bring harm, that bring harm either to oneself or bring harm to others, and very often that bring harm to both, because victimizers frequently are or were once victims themselves. And we're right, of course, to think of these occupations as work which our faith calls us to move away from. But I think that at this point, it's important for me to pause and to say that this sermon is not about us judging others for the work that they do or the work that they may have left in the past. Rather, we should each find ourselves personally challenged in some way. As the proverb said, who can say, I am clean and pure of heart? 
This sermon today isn't about what your neighbor is doing wrong. It isn't about that speck which is in your brother or sister's eye. It's about you. It's about your pursuit of justice. It's about your work. And it's about your mercy toward those in need. In Mere Christianity, the author C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, or I would add addiction or theft, as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting another person in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasures of power, of hatred. They are the, uh, for there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of these two. There is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than the prostitute. I hope and I pray that there are no cold, self-righteous prigs among us today, that we are all coming, desiring to hear for ourselves how God calls us to be blameless in our lives and blameless in our work. I trust that we are all seeking to be that truly human self which our God created us to be. But when we think of work which we must not do, I suspect that we did all think of things relating to that animal self first. We judge those whose work caters to the sins of the flesh. But there are many other occupations which are far more concerning, which encourage the diabolical self, spiritual sins which must be addressed. I have a litany for you to consider. What about the sinful practice of payday loan services? Preying on the need and desperation of the poor and requiring extortionate interest, equivalent to 442% a year. That's legal in our province, in our country. What about the sin of designing addictive mobile games, which encourage children to become gamblers, paying more and more money for the very small chance at getting the cosmetic alteration to the game that they're looking for? Or what of those who work in the gambling in industry, where more than just providing entertainment, they actually craft an environment to encourage people to stay longer than they want to, to spend more money than they plan to, and to desire to come back again for more? What of the CEO whose fiduciary responsibility to shareholders means that she will lay off staff, cut meager wages, plan product obsolescence, all to improve the bottom line, while taking her own salary and bonuses unchanged? Or indeed, what about pushy salespeople who see the vulnerability of senior citizens and have them pay for products and services that they do not need, or perhaps that they will never really receive at all? What of the cashier who gives incorrect change to even out the till after realizing an earlier mistake? 
or the petty manager who cares far more for their control over their employees than the well-being and the quality of those employees' work? What about students who cheat on tests or lie about why assignments weren't done? What about textbook manufacturers that release the same edition of books year after year for more and more money and try and squash the secondhand market? All of these things are far from the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness was none of that that we just heard. All of this is a way of evil in our world, and yet we are not so quick to think of it when we think of work which Christians should avoid participating in. And it's interesting to me how the passage we heard from the book of Proverbs twice mentions that differing weights and measures are hated by God. It's not something that we think about very much, but imagine if every time you went to the deli or the gas station, you weren't sure how they were weighing things, how they were measuring things. If a liter of gas was different at every pump you went to, sometimes you got more, but far more often you would get less. This was an easy way for merchants to pad their margins a little bit in the ancient world. And God is concerned about that, concerned enough to say it twice in the same passage. The simplicity of dishonest scales is something that brings displeasure to God. For us, many of these things are regulated, and there's a federal agency called Measurement Canada that enforces these things for us. So we take it for granted in the literal sense. But the good news of honest scales, of fair trade, of people understanding what they're engaging in, these things are a sign of God's kingdom, God's reign in our world. How many of us work in industries where numbers can be fudged, where billable hours can be charged to accounts that have some wiggle room left in them, where an order can come up short or a customer can be encouraged to purchase an upgrade that we know they don't need? Differing weights and measures, the Lord detests them both. You see, our faith interacts with our work because in all of our work, we're not only accountable to our shareholders or to our customers or our managers or even our government. But as Christians, we uniquely understand that we are ultimately and finally accountable to our God. We are accountable to God for the ways that we are living and that we're trying to live into those full human persons that we were made to be. And we're also accountable to God for the way that we allow ourselves to be animalistic, or worse, devilish. In our work, as in all of our life, we ought to be revealing God's kingdom, but too often we are neutral about that kingdom at best. And far more often, we're likely actively subverting or hiding it by use of dishonest scales. There are so many stories in the scriptures of people whose work was questionable, objectionable even, and these people responding to the call of God in astounding ways. So once again, we must be careful 
always not to judge one person's life or work as irredeemable. Rahab, who allowed the Israelite spies into her brothel, becomes a woman in the genealogy of Jesus. And Zacchaeus, who collected taxes and beyond that robbed the poor, returned more than all he owed to those who he harmed. Likewise, all of us who have faltered in our blamelessness, who have sought income in a way we ought not to have, who have cheated or lied or stole, all of us who have crossed an ethical line or harmed ourselves or others by our work, all of us, we're not too far gone either, and our sin need not always be remembered. God offers a better way as we turn and continually turn again to no longer live the lives we once did, but always live in a new way which was modeled for us by Jesus, a way which testifies to the goodness of his kingdom in all of our work for all who we interact with through our work as well. So then the bottom line question that I'm sure many of you are wondering is, what kinds of occupations should Christians have and what kind of work should Christians refuse? And I don't have an answer for you because the church has wrestled with this question for as long as the church has existed. Should Christians be soldiers? I think in this room we might have a great many differing opinions and this question was first tenuously answered by the early church by saying that they could be soldiers but to kill in war was still the sin of murder. And they should repent of that sin and do penance for murder after they return. Should Christians be politicians? Should Christians vote at all? That was a question which once divided our denomination. Can a Christian be an investment banker and just be creating wealth for somebody else? In a capitalistic society, most of our work is just creating wealth for somebody else. These questions are not simple. Should Christians be actors? That's actually a far more controversial question than I think many of you would suspect, and one that I'd like to use as a case study for our wrestling with this question overall, because I think it shows us not just what Christians ought to do for their own work, but how we should help those who choose to leave work that they are convinced is not good for them. In the Greco-Roman world, the world of the Bible, the New Testament, theater was intimately tied to the rituals of the pagan temple. That's why it was so controversial in the church. They were religious rites for other gods. So when an actor who was a new convert to Christianity joined the church, he gave up acting, as the church expected him to do. However, this was his means of income. And we have a saying of those who cannot do, they teach. And while I think that statement is grossly unfair to teachers, in this man's case, it happened to be exactly what he did. No longer able to act himself, he decided that he would ply his trade by teaching acting to others. This might be akin to a leader of another religion resigning when they convert to Christianity, but continuing to teach at that other religious seminary. It didn't pass the smell test for the church. They weren't okay with it. So the church wrote to their bishop 
who was St. Cyprian of Carthage, a North African bishop, and he affirmed that surely if this man should not act, neither should he teach others to act. Concerned, however, for what he would do if all his means of income were taken away, Cyprian writes, but if such a one alleges poverty and the necessity of small means, his necessity also can be assisted among the rest who are maintained and supported by the church. If he be content, that is, with very frugal but innocent food, what more he may wish, he must seek thence. What Cyprian's saying is that the church helped other people. The church paid for widows and orphans to have good lives. Simple lives, but good lives. And he's saying that if this man can only act or teach acting in the church, and this time believed that acting was not right for Christians to do, then he too should be helped. And then it wouldn't be a lavish life, but it would be enough. And beyond that, perhaps he could learn a new trade and sustain himself again more completely. This, this is the call of the church. It's not actors anymore. Our theaters aren't so tied to pagan rituals as they once were. But it's not enough for the church to say, one must not work in these fields. One must not do these things. One must not turn to these means to feed yourself or your family or to house yourselves. We can't just say that unless we're also prepared to help those who see no other way to do work, which otherwise they would not do. If they can't help themselves in any other way, it's the church's responsibility to provide for their needs. It's not enough for us to simply say to the sex worker or the robber or the dealer, this is outside of Christian morality and expect that they'll somehow be fine. Rather, we must also be prepared to offer support in finding other work and providing for them until they're able to. But as I said, those aren't the only people who work in ways that Jesus calls us away from. And the text from Ephesians shows us maybe a piece of the other side of this. It might speak to those of us who use dishonest scales not because we must, but because we can or even because it's easier for us if we do. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Notice that the point of working is not to amass wealth. Rather, the point of working is that each may have something to share with those in need. For those of us who find ourselves in the places that we do, because of the paycheck that it offers. Why are we in that place? Are we using those paychecks to amass wealth? Or are we doing it to share with those in need? I think that if the disposition of our hearts is that we desire to share with those in need, then we will not find ourselves taking advantage of others, lying, misleading, cheating, or indeed stealing in our regular interactions at work. Rather, the posture of our heart desiring to help others will become the governor for our work as well. And it will prevent the foothold of the enemy in our lives. But the reverse is also true. 
if the disposition of our hearts is to acquire primarily for ourselves, then that itself is the foothold in our work lives for the devil to do his work in us. If our primary goal is our own prosperity, what's a dishonest scale if it gets us one step closer to that goal? Remember the words of the letter to the Ephesians, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We must remember that we have been taught these things and this is our new and very high calling. The final verse from the book of Pro from that section of Proverbs that we heard struck me as I considered this call in our lives both to work blamelessly and to help others in our church to do the same. It is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. In our baptisms and at our professions of faith, we dedicated our very selves to the death, life, and resurrection work of Jesus. And it was a trap to do that rashly and then go about our lives and our work as if we are not in Christ. To consider our baptismal vows only later, only after the bills are paid. Similarly, each time that we baptize a new person in our community or we receive new members into the church, we together make promises to them. We promise them that we will love them and support them, that we will encourage them in their growth in the faith. We're promising them that we will help them to be like Jesus. Is that a vow that we offer rashly and only consider the meaning of later? Because in that vow, I think that we're saying that if a person finds themselves doing work, which they need to do to pay the bills, but they know they shouldn't do if they're following Jesus, then it's our responsibility to help them to find new work, to support them as they figure out what's next. That's part of what we're promising to every person who becomes a part of our community. I don't know if your whole job is something which is a challenge for Christians to do, or especially for Christians to do blamelessly or if there are just parts of your job that are that kind of challenge, or if it's just those little shortcuts that you know everybody takes, but it doesn't display that new self at work in you. But I suspect for each of us, there's something. I know for pastors, there's something. There's the temptation to stop praying and reading the Bible and just do these things publicly. It's a shortcut. It's a dishonest scale. And perhaps, whatever it is for you, it's easy to overlook, like a differing weight or measure. But if we continually put the old self off, if we are continually seeking to be as God, then we must be blameless in all of our life and blameless in our work. That in doing the things which God has given us to do to provide for ourselves, our families, and those in need, we would not be subverters of the kingdom coming into the lives of those who we serve, but we would in fact reveal its goodness and righteousness in our work.
and end as well in the work which we refuse to do. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to leave time for you to reflect about this. If this sermon really was about you, about me, about us, and not about other people who we know, then we should take time to reflect on how that's the case. And so a few questions for you to think about and you at home to maybe discuss with those who are near you. Where do you see dishonest scales in your life or in our world? Pray that God would address those dishonest practices. And secondly, is there anything you do while working which hides or undermines God's coming kingdom? And then an invitation to pray that God would help you be righteous and holy in your work and for help to turn away from work which harms you or harms others.